I'm, uh, I'm pretty sure that my parents raised me in another generation because I remember watching the old black and white show, Ma and Pa Kettle. How many of you remember Ma and Pa Kettle? Okay, all right, good, I'm not the only one. Although I was probably the only one who ever watched them on DVD. Um, <laughs> it was pretty much, if you don't know anything about Ma and Pa Kettle, it was pretty much the forerunner of the Beverly Hillbillies. That's putting it so, so whatever. The Kettles were a huge family who lived in the Ozarks, and uh, they struck it rich by winning a contest. And now they've been moved in some, some high-class, modern luxury apartment, what big big house, and, but all the old habits die hard, again, like the Clampets. Pa's got a pretty prominent lazy streak in him, and so every episode, multiple times an episode, something would break in this new modernized, newfangled house, and he just haphazardly had glued it together earlier or something like that, and he'd mumble the exact same punchline over and over again, and we would laugh every single, single time. I've been meaning to fix that one of these days, is what he'd say. Every single time. I'll probably have to bring in a marriage counselor for the week for our congregation by asking this, but do you have any unfinished projects around your house? You're like, move on, Corey. Move on. You know, she saw that great idea on TikTok, and it only took them 15 seconds to build this thing, right? Right? He made it look so easy on the YouTube channel that you follow, and there's simply no way that you couldn't do that quick, easy DIY project that no modern American home can do without. If statistics hold true to our congregation this morning, and they probably do, at very least a third of us have some project that we've been putting off for a year or more. Top of the list, laying new flooring, remodeling the bathroom, those were close runner-ups, Painting, painting was, that was the one that took up the vast majority of the projects that have been started but never really completed. I, I really apologize for all of the elbow jabs you men are suffering through this morning. That's why I preach, so I don't have to sit by Rachel during this kind of thing, because I'm preaching to myself. If that's you, then you've been meaning to fix that one of these days. Take heart. You are not alone at all. Uh, in fact, it's pretty much the American way. There was, an, there was an article from The Atlantic published a few years back that told the tale of thousands of acres of land purchased and partially developed these subdivisions prior to the 2009 market collapse, or the market pop, or boom, as they said. Other, another article dubs them zombie subdivisions, desolate-looking spans of acres with only a couple of houses, maybe, where obviously there were meant to be dozens of other places, other dwellings and stuff like that. These are ghost town-like, leveled, wired. Oftentimes they are paved plots of land whose developers went belly up in the middle of a financial crisis when the, the market screeched to a halt. I know our area had their fair share of them some years back. Literally, we saw half-built occupied buildings bricked on three sides and then pretty much glorified tar paper on the fourth side. Inside, people were going on as business as usual, just not able to build the rest of the building. I'm kind of thankful for that because that allowed us to buy our house back in 2010. If you can remember what that looked like several years back in our community, or you can recall the pang of looking at that half-finished DIY project at home, 
you might begin to slightly understand the national feeling in Jerusalem around the time of Ezra chapter 5. The children of Israel had been released from captivity in Babylon. It's been deemed their second exodus. They returned back home to Jerusalem, commissioned by Cyrus, this Persian king, to rebuild the temple of God. And they started out so good. And then they stumbled. We looked at it last week where the Jews succumbed to the opposition surrounding them from other city-states who were not happy with their rebuilding. And so they stopped. Cold. Dead in the water. If we could fly back in time 2,500 years or so and travel this 6,400 miles to Jerusalem this morning, all you would see is an altar surrounded by an outline of foundation stones. A zombie temple, if we want to use those terms. That's where they stopped. With all the fanfare of restarting the sacrifices and all the celebration of laying the foundation, not one more thing had been built onto the temple for the last ten years. Ten years. Let that sink in. Children who arrived on site with their parents are pretty much grown up now. Zerubbabel, the political leader, rightful heir to David's throne, the return of the king that I mentioned several weeks back. He's a decade older, and he is not one day closer to sitting on that throne. Jeshua, the religious leader, the high priest of God's people, he's had church, if we can say it in modern terms, among ruins for a decade. It's not pretty. Can you imagine how disheartening it all was? To lead God's people but not even be able to build one building in 16 years' time. To minister to God's people all the while having to stumble over rubble to get to the altar of sacrifice. But suddenly there's this turn in the story. There's two men who rise up among their midst who are very unlike all the others among the Jews. They're not architects. They're not foremen. They're prophets. You would think some of the most unhelpful people during a building project, right? They are proclaimers of God's truth. The people of God, they've pretty much gone without a prophet since the time of Daniel. And even then, there's a lot of question as to how accessible Daniel's prophecies were in their time for them as he was serving in the courts of kings and they were just relegated to the cities of Babylon. There was a famine in the land concerning Revelation and the people were starving to hear. What does God say to us? We're introduced to, in Ezra chapter 5 to Haggai and Zechariah. They come on the scene. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, you've heard those names. They've got books of the Bible that are named after them for their prophecies. But I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that you're probably not very familiar with these characters. Would, would I be okay with saying that? I had to really refresh myself, particularly with Zechariah this week. The setting of Ezra 5 puts it this way. Verse 1, the prophets 
Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who is over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, rose up, and because of the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah, he began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. These two prophets are so important that they are almost single-handedly responsible for jump-starting the rebuilding of the temple of God. Doing what God's people were told to do decades prior, but had stopped doing it. But verses two, verse 2's claim that Haggai and Zechariah were simply with God's people, helping them, that's about as in-depth as you're going to find about these men in the book of Ezra. What did they do? What did their presence do? How did they help? Did they start letter-writing campaigns on the people's behalf? Did they offer after-school programs to kids to teach them how to build? Did they, did they just go down to the work site and begin moving rocks? No, it doesn't seem like they did any of those things as beneficial as it might be, and as simple as it is to build, just move rock, it doesn't seem like that's how they helped the people of God. Their job, their responsibility, was simply to remind God's people about what they were supposed to be doing. Plainly put, low shelf, that was their mission in life. One of reminding. I don't want this to come across as self-serving. I hope the Lord knows my heart. I hope you know my heart. But I think it's important, it's appropriate for us to stop and testify about the value of preaching in our lives. If you won't, I will. I've, been, I've seen about 1,900 Sundays in my life. I'll say it that way. And among those, I've probably only not been in church at most 20 times. And I'm probably being liberal with that number. That's not a brag at all. That's just kind of to lay the groundwork for what I'm about to say. Reminder is the most powerful tool in the Christian life. Remembering or being reminded of what God has done for us and the truths of His Word on a regular basis is the most powerful tool in the Christian life. I am I'm positive that throughout my life I have learned a lot of new information in church. In fact, I, I know I have. I'm positive I have. But the best thing that hearing the Word of God preached does in my life and yours is that it reminds us of what we already know to be true. Even in a sermon where you didn't learn anything, it's still good to hear the reminded Word of God. There's a reason that many churches recite creeds and practice rituals. I'm careful to use that terminology with rituals in their church services. And we don't necessarily go down that liturgical path, that extreme of, of only always saying a certain plot of words. 
But we often hear these reminders that we need in the songs that we sing. Every single one of you, I assume, attended church this morning knowing that your Redeemer lives, yet it's still good to hear. Like Job, that when my body is destroyed, my Redeemer will in the flesh stand on this earth. He lives. We are a people who are preoccupied with the new, with the shiny, with the flashy, and it's good for us to stop and simply be reminded in God's Word about His truth for us. Ancient truth for me. Will you learn something new every Sunday? Absolutely not, except to say maybe that I watched Mom Pa Kettle as a kid. I'm not that gifted of a speaker, but it's the calling of my life to stir you up to godliness. And 2 Peter verse, chapter 1, verse 13 tells us that the main way I do that is by way of reminder. That's the main call. So when church seems mundane and you feel like you could pretty much dictate every single thing that's going to happen or be said, know that there is still value in being among the people of God because someone near you needs to be reminded about the goodness of God, his love for the nations, his control over circumstances, his gift of the church, the holiness to which we are all called, the community amongst believers, the pricelessness of salvation, his creating us, his sustaining us, his redeeming us. He came, he died, he rose, he ascended, and he's soon returning. I know all of this, but I've needed to be reminded of that I've needed to be reminded of all of this multiple times and on a weekly basis. Do you agree? We need to hear it and hear it and hear it and be reminded. Well, what was it that Haggai and Zechariah preached? What did they remind God's people of? Hmm. If you're looking in Ezra, you're not going to find much more than just their names. But thankfully, as I alluded to earlier, their, their prophecies and their sermons were recorded for us separately in their own individual books. Turn first to Haggai. And I'll give you a little time to turn there. Because you're going to have to, Genesis, you might have to go through your, I called it this morning, your catalog of the Bible. While you're turning... Let me, in on you a sec- let me let you in on a secret that will just kind of bypass your English hearing ears. Even the name Haggai, it affirms the value of reminder. Haggai means festival. If you're familiar with the Islamic faith, you may have heard the word Hajj. The Hajj is their once-a-year festival in which they travel to Mecca for religious observances. Haggai's name boasts that exact same root, although uh, it doesn't speak of a pilgrimage to visit a rock. It speaks to the many festivals that reminded God's people annually about their life of dedication to the Lord. But Haggai's sermon is a lot more in your face than just remember the festivals. Brother Edwin already read the text, and brother, I apologize, you had some difficult names in that. I, I should have thought through that before I sent it to you. But I want to set it in context in the story of Ezra. 
where the not even half-finished temple still lays in ruins and God's people act as if everything's okay. I'm fine. You're fine. It's fine. For ten years, the temple of God has laid in ruins with merely a foundation and barely an altar in place. And that's it. Haggai comes on the scene in chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, this is his message, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people, the Jews, they say, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Oh, is it time for yourselves to dwell in your own paneled houses and this temple lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Haggai's sermon is a reminder about priorities. Priorities. In it, we find a little more information about what was going on in the in-between time of Ezra chapter 4 and 5. God's people had gotten discouraged from building the temple of God, which we, they had been commanded by Him to build earlier. Those other city-states around them that successfully intimidated them from laying block. But apparently, in the middle of it all, they didn't get any flack for building their own homes. So while they didn't build the temple in Jerusalem, they did go out into the neighborhoods and build their own houses. Now remember, all of Jerusalem was in shambles. The thousands of people who were returning, they had to have places to live. In addition to building the temple of God, there was this expectation that you would build for yourself homes and houses. There's nothing wrong with that. Actually, it's even celebrated earlier in the book of Ezra. The problem comes in Haggai 1.4. When God, through Haggai, lathers on the sarcasm. I love it when God is sarcastic, except when he's sarcastic with me. The Jews said, almost like in a holy way, we know the mind of God, it is not time to build the house of the Lord. Too many closed doors, too many closed windows, it's obvious God doesn't want us to... No, He told you He wanted to do this, and you have found every reason in the world to not do it. It is not the time to build the house of God. And so God sardonically replies, oh, but it is time for you to live in your paneled houses? Plenty of time for that, huh? It's not necessarily in vogue today, at least not this week. Give it a little while and it probably will be on TikTok, all the rage. But this paneling that they're talking about here is it most likely refers to cedar planks that line the walls and ceilings. Think of your typical picture of a Middle Eastern home. One that you grew up seeing in Sunday school class. What do you see? You don't see wood paneling. You think stucco. You think clay. That's because such woods were sparse in this region, having to be imported from other places. So the fact that God sarcastically points this out about their homes, it seems to underline the point that they had actually experienced great wealth during the 16 years of their return to Jerusalem. 
However, it may also point out that many of the Jews, after a couple of years of not seeing the temple built, actually went to the temple job site and scavenged some of the wood donated in Ezra 3.7 for their own home. God's house is in shambles. Stones barely on top of each other. The worksite is littered about with materials and tools, smelling like a dump for over a decade. And meanwhile, the people of God are living in their own individual houses where the fragrance of luxurious cedars welcomes them whenever they walk in the door. They're on the third addition to their home. They're installing the swimming pool next week. There's nothing wrong with wood paneling. I kind of like that. You know, there's nothing wrong with having a pool. I believe the Lord's calling you to let me swim in your pool. Um, nothing wrong with that. But there is a problem if you've dipped into the offering plate to build some of that. <laughs> At the very least, there is a problem of priorities. If you can lavishly decorate your home and not care two cents about what the temple looks like. Apply the message of Haggai to your own life. Don't equate the church house, this building, to the temple. I'm not saying, how dare you paint your house when we have classrooms here at the church that need to be painted. That's not what I'm saying. That's so low-hanging, it's not even a correct analogy for application. But think about it spiritually. We are a culture of misplaced priorities. We put everything, and I mean everything, before the Lord. It's not that we don't want Him in our life. It's just that we're not too keen on giving Him our first, our best. Jobs come before Him. Sports come before Him. Chores come before Him. Family comes before him. Projects come before him. Academics come before him. Literally everything comes before Christ on our list. Everything. You know what all of this is? All these things that I mentioned and what the Holy Spirit is even now convicting of you in your own heart and life right now, do you know what all this is? Paneled houses. That's all it is. Paneled homes. You have relegated God to the trash heap construction side of your life. All the while, you have built for yourself a safe, comfortable, luxurious habitat to which you can come home to. You tell me who you're worshiping. You tell me. I worship the Lord. Doesn't look like it, Jews. Doesn't look like it those who've gone back to Israel, to Jerusalem. This week I came across the most heartbreaking social media post. I am careful to do this because I really don't know who posted it. Those of you who know me know that the Lord has blessed me with a horrible memory, and this is where it is a blessing. I screenshotted it without the account's name, so if it's you, sorry, not sorry kind of thing. It reads, I don't go to church. That doesn't mean I lack a relationship with God. I don't read the Bible every day, every week, or even every year. That doesn't mean I don't know God's Word. 
how heartbreaking that we have turned worship of the one true God to that kind of nonsense. Seriously heartbreaking. Just flip the script a little. You'll see how sad it is. Insert your spouse's name and see how healthy that relationship is. I love Rachel, but I don't want to be around any other person who loves and appreciates her. I love Rachel, but sometimes we go weeks and even years without talking. I love Rachel, but I rarely return her calls or texts. No one in their right mind would say that I have a healthy marriage, if that were the case. Yet we have convinced ourselves that this is okay with our relationship with the Lord. Paneled houses. All it is. Luxurious homes. Meanwhile, the house of God has yet to be built. It's so similar to what the Jews were doing in their in-between time of Ezra 4 and 5. Everything else was more important to them, yet they still considered themselves the people of God. Haggai comes in perfectly, succinctly. He points out how absurd they're claiming a relationship with God was. His book is only 38 verses. That's my kind of book of the Bible right there. Two chapters. You read it in one setting. It's usually skipped over by most of us in the Bible study, but it cuts us to our core. Four times in this little book, Haggai beckons us to consider your ways. Consider your ways. It's almost as if he's saying, don't even let me preach to you. You just stop and preach to yourself. Consider your ways. You know, it would be well worth our time if each of us really, seriously considered our ways. I mean, put pen and paper to it. Carve out time this week to meditate on that idea. Discuss Discuss it over lunch here in a little bit as a family. What does it mean to have the priority of God in your life? Consider your ways. What are your life and family priorities? Every single one of us would say, oh, God is first, absolutely. God's first in my life. We, like every athlete who's interviewed after every game, God's number one, God's number one. <laughs> we'll all say it. But is your life living up to that statement of saying that he is first? What does it practically look like? What luxury do you live your life in while God is metaphorically tossed out back, forgotten for over a decade, taken for granted, with mere religion just kind of keeping you in check, just doing the things that you've always done because this is what you do on a Sunday morning. Consider your ways. The book of Zechariah, it's much longer. <laughs> much longer. And quite honestly, a lot more confusing. A lot more confusing. It contains nine visions or dreams I'll use those terms interchangeably. I know some of you will get on to me after for it, but I'll use them interchangeably. 
Zechariah essentially has like nine different sermons that he preaches to the people of God in the next book over from Haggai. Nine visions, nine burdens that the Lord gives him. Now these dreams, I'll forewarn you, these dreams are pretty much like yours. They're wild. (laughs) They are crazy. They include pictures of a woman being carried away in a basket by angels. Makes your dreams look tame, I think. Horns erupting from the ground. A scroll attacking people who are doing wrong. That's the word of God right there, let me tell you. Except Zachariah's dreams are so unlike ours because God gave them to him, specifically inspiring them to the annals of Scripture for God's people. Not just for then, but for today. There's two prominent scenes in Zechariah's visions. There's one of the plumb line and one of the filthy priest, if we were to name them. In the first case, the plumb line, it comes in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Zechariah comes across a man in this vision, and the man is holding a measuring line. He's surveying Jerusalem. But here, and it's ironic to me that as, as Zechariah is writing this, Jerusalem's in ruins, but, but here the man gladly proclaims that Jerusalem will be rebuilt and it will be a refuge. No matter how many si- what, what the length is, what the depth, no matter the size of the survey, it will fit as a refuge for all the people, for all the nations. That's the kind of sermon that encourages people to rise up and build. It doesn't matter how big you build, God's going to make everyone, all the nations come to this place. We're going to do something bigger than ourselves, which will extend far greater than our own reach. Let's rise up and build. If there's anything that friends who visited Europe have come back amazed at, it's the cathedrals. These huge buildings. These massive, ornate architectural feats of engineering, they point upwards to heaven that they preach about within. What's most fascinating to me about them is the length of time it takes to build one of these. Long time. You know, if we were stuck in a building project here at New Hope for 10 years, I'd imagine you'd probably get a little antsy. I know I would. When's it going to be done? What's the contractor saying? They haven't lived up to what they said they were going to do. What about centuries? Centuries. Many of these churches were built by generations of men who would never actually sit inside and worship there. Yet still, they built. So it is with Jerusalem and Zechariah's vision. Rise up and build because you are doing a bigger thing than for just yourself. This will be a place for all nations. We'll see that come to fruition when Jesus tosses over the money changers' desks and says, is, it, is God's word not said that this ought to be a place of prayer for all nations? He literally opens it up. And then the ripping of the, of the sheet between the holy of holies, I could go on. He made it open for all nations to come to him, regardless of the, the length and breadth of the city of Jerusalem. That's a great vision, but probably the most poignant of Zechariah's visions is that of the filthy priest. In chapter 3, 
Zechariah in this dream is ushered into the throne room of God. Equal parts throne room and courtroom, I guess. And he's presented with a very alarming sight. Read along with me as I read Zechariah 3.1. Then he showed me Jeshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose Jeshua. This is Jeshua of the book of Ezra. Joshua, Jeshua, same name. Zechariah recognizes him because he's his contemporary. And he sees Jeshua, the high priest of God's people, being accused by Satan of sin before the just judge of the earth. What's worse is that this court case, it doesn't seem to be going very well. Jeshua is not putting his best foot forward. He's showing up to court unkempt. We'll just say it that way. Verse 3 tells us that he is standing before a holy God in filthy clothing. Something that a priest would have literally been killed for back on earth. Joshua is standing before a holy God. Dirty. And there's Satan. He is eating it up. He does what he does. He points out the filth. He accuses Joshua and understood in this priestly office, he is accusing the entire congregation of God's people. What? will the verdict be? It doesn't look hopeful for Jeshua who is standing there in front of a holy God, filthy, disgusting, looking like pig pen before the throne. In the middle of this accusation, when Satan is accusing most, it looks like it's all at its worst, the quintessential courtroom drama, the Lord stands up and essentially cries out, objection! Objection! The accuser is out of line. Verse 2, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this Israel, Jeshua? Is this not a brand plucked out of the fire? Skip to verse 4. Then the Lord answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, see, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, let them put on a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. You can insert approvingly as to what's going on here. You are miles ahead of me, or at least I hope you are. You get it. I sure hope you do. Joshua stood before God as the archetype of humanity, each one of us standing ashamed in our own filth before a just judge of the universe. Hopelessly, the accuser rails against us, pointing out every sin, every indiscretion that we have ever committed in our entire life. We are worse than filthy. We are guilty, and our punishment is fire, yet First John tells us we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. He took off our filthy robes, and he gave us 
clean ones. He lifts up our heads and he places not turbans, but crowns upon us. Not because he just wiped out our sin or says, oh, it's no big deal, but because he dealt with our sin on the cross of Calvary, taking it upon himself. He, the clean, was made unclean for us. He, the righteous, bore our sin in his own body so that we might stand before God pure. Amen, church? When he accuses, here, at a line. Objection. Not because of anything this creature of filth has done, but because of the righteousness of the great high priest. And because he took it off and gave it to us, do we have any hope before a just judge? With all of these sermons and more, the people of God in Ezra 5, they are stirred to work for God, as Haggai 1.4 says. They've got corrected priorities. They've got a pure mindset before God because they understand, at least in part, that their righteousness is not of their own, but it has been freely given to all who would believe. Those sermons, centuries preached, ought to ring in our minds this week as we add to our own house, build the paneling, set it all up, consider your ways. Pure priorities. That's what we're called to. Father, I pray. Right now, Lord, that you will be glorified in every heart and life in this room. You are so good and you are so faithful and we are not. I thank you for our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who has clothed us we creatures of dust in his righteousness. Lord, I pray that it will, it will reflect in every area of our life. Father, right now, I pray for the parents that at some point, maybe in a few minutes, around the lunch table, or maybe tomorrow night, they'll gather everybody around and they'll talk about what it means to have right priorities. Pure priorities in our life. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.